You're listening to SBS News. Uncle Michael Welsh is a Wyoming man and member of the Stolen Generations. The 71-year-old shares his story of grief and healing, how he used alcohol and violence to suppress the trauma and abuse he says he confronted at Kinchella Boys' Home before finally finding safety and comfort to share his story among other men who were subject to the same trauma. In an extra episode for the Living Loss series, I speak to Uncle Michael about his journey with the Healing Foundation's Stolen Generations Reference Group and how he navigates grief. The pain never goes away. Uh, we wake it up each time when we do these type of talks, but uh, I understand above everything else that if we don't talk about it, it slowly kills us from the inside. Uh, as a child, they did this, and you can do any of this to children. So the thing that I love most of all about where we are now with you is that the purpose of this will will help some child able to understand what's happened to them because there's so many of our brothers and sisters who passed away and never, ever been able to do what I'm doing now to talk about it. I'm 71 years of age, so for 50 years I didn't talk about it and couldn't talk about it. And uh, the truth is I've got got teeth marks on my knuckles because I couldn't talk. And I, 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 I still can't believe that that was me. But when when I got old enough to turn to drink and alcohol, that type of thing, I did mm. because I, I didn't know that I was traumatised. And I do know now the word trauma is not just a word. It's a disease that they programmed to put into my brain as a child. I was in two relationships, four, four children from both of them. My oldest child, son got taken away from me and the woman I married, he was found by accident by another sister who went up to Queensland to visit a sister and he drove past in a car. He was 26 years of age when they asked him who he was. So they brought him back and um, I met him for the first time in his life when he was 26. I know you're a member of the Stolen Generations. Um, If you're comfortable sort of sharing what that experience is like, especially in relation to that idea of grief that I'm exploring. Um, look, Jack, before they took took me away um, from my mother, there were seven of us they took from my mother. And my names are James Michael Whitty Welch or number 36. Now, each one of those and the number is a identification of a part of a journey of me at where I was. Um, I was Michael when I went into the homes. When we passed through the gates of L, L that we call it, so we were given numbers. My my brother and myself, he was number 17, and I was given number 36. And everything, everything that we had in war had those brands on it. And we couldn't, if we got caught using each other's names, we got punished or different way. Whatever that person felt like doing to punish us, that's what it did. 
They were, and I, I, became, I was Michael again when I was back home, and I watched them put the drums and stumps out to sit on, and I'd never realised, but they were making a ceremonial circle. And uh, if they had got caught doing that, and this is nine, this is nineteen sixty-four or sixty-five, something like that, they would have been jailed, shot, or whatever, because the law stated that that, that wasn't allowed to use that culture. But then they sung out to me, and they said, "Michael, come in and come over." And then they sung out this where my cousin was, and they said, "With him," and waved like that for him to come over. This white man jumped up and come over. The word "withu" in our language means white man. Right? So when he came in, they said, come into the side of the circle. They said, first of all, Michael, meet your father. I didn't know what to do because I wanted to, I wanted to shoot every white person that because of what happened to me where I was in, yeah. in the flock, the starvings and the sexual abuse, they you know, tie you down and sexually abuse you. They did these things and, I went and told my story to the manager and I got flogged and starved. And, uh, so that was the beginning of my shutting down at a young age, I think at about nine. We danced around the campfire of a night time. This is what the beautiful life was. Like. Pop played the violin, Mum played the piano accordion. Uh, my auntie Selena just said, told me about the name Witty. She played the bones. And we had an uncle who played the gum leaves, a cousin who played the gum leaves. And we danced around the campfire over night time while they talked about the stars and they talked about the sparks. They talked about the flames and the colours. The, color, the flames would change colours. So that was a world that was such a perfect world. And then school, we did school. And then they took us. It, it, it was difficult to ride on the train. And uh, I can still see mum and the uncle standing there and waving to us with the little handkerchief that they had. And Central Station became a very important part in our lives because that was where we were separated from there. That was the last place that we knew our family. Family love, as you know, that was broken there, right, on the split up there. That was something that happened, you know, 20 years later. We started to meet a couple of them as they, they come home and got rejected by our own community. I can't imagine the grief that would have come alongside not being able to be welcomed back into your own community, but also having the trauma of the white community. Was that just compounding that grief and that trauma by not being able to be sort of back in your own community even? I finished up in and out of the jail system like a yo-yo, you know, and uh, fighting. I often show it. I've got teeth marks all across my knuckles, you know, and uh, I didn't look after myself at all in that sense. I just, I got a bottle mark across the forehead. I got a bit hit across the snout with an iron bar, you know, uh, I've been stabbed twice. I've been shot at three times while I'm trying to get away from the bloke with the gun, you know, and uh, rolled cars. I've been in three houses that have burned down. I'm here because they've given, I believe that I have a purpose of life to, to do this. I guess talk me through what it was like holding that grief 
inside of you and how you navigated that? Because it sounds like initially you didn't navigate it, obviously, in a way that you felt was healthy for you. Could you talk to me a little bit about why that trauma was felt in those ways initially? We weren't allowed to talk. We had no choice to make a decision. And, and I, I know now at my life now that all of these things that they've programmed us to do, they've programmed us to be slaves for the colonised world, right, uh, of, of, of assimilation. And uh, we were never going to be anything else. They didn't want us to be anything else. We weren't going to be educated except for work. So that, that's what we were good at. And I did. I worked. I worked out. I was a welder for 30 odd years. I'd get drunk. I'd get drunk and I didn't drink because of the pleasure of it. I'd drink to wipe my mind out. And so I'd wake up in jail, you know, uh, probably seven times out of ten I'd wake up in a cell. I'd teach my children how to fight when they were five-year-old, six-year-old. I'd get down and doing that. I didn't know I was reenacting what these people in that home's done to us. They, 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 they taught us how to fight. They taught us how to knock people down and told us we were never allowed to ask questions or do anything. So that was that was coming out of me. I'm really interested in how grief can change over time. And it sounds like initially, obviously, your grief was you um, repeating the anger and the way you were treated and abused in your in the boys' home. You That was your way of responding to the grief by obviously emulating that behaviour. But then it sounds like something changed and you navigate your grief now by sharing your story with the other men who are from those homes, with other people that have no understanding of what it's like, like myself and others. How, what changed for you there? What happened? Um, could you tell me about what happened? What what um, prompted that yeah. change in response to your grief, I suppose? I was welded for 20, 30 years and I, I got up and I, I got up and I chucked my elder down and I just walked away from it because my children then they were starting to be treated like me. Like I said, my eldest son was taken away from us and that type of thing. Love is something that is so powerful that that's why I stayed in my own community. My concern is now is the next generation are the ones who are going to suffer. And I just identified that I've gone from one to 56. And that's not fair. That's not fair that the government, I've... I talk about the government, give me the right to be wrong. You've never given that to our people. Give me the resources to rebuild what you broke. They broke my family structure. I, I can only talk about my own, but they've done this to thousands of others because family structure takes care of children and takes care of family. Government, you've heard them say so many times that they want to heal communities. They can't heal communities. Not when while there's fifteen to twenty thousand children in out of home care right now. While ever they take children away from families, families become broken, communities become broken. And it's not a community, it's communities. So it isn't possible to heal communities, but it is possible to rebuild family structure. Happy family makes happy communities. But, yeah, my journey to where I am here at this moment, it began because I couldn't watch my children be treated. They, they all say that they love me. They couldn't wish for a better father. But 
what did worry me was the way that my children were being treated because of my violence and the way that I was acting out. Now, this is where now with this badge, this one, this this is a place of safety. This is something that if we can then get our descendants, which is the most important thing about this journey that we're doing, we tell the stories and we're talking about stuff now that's happened to us in the past. They are the knowledge elders of the future. So if we tell them about the pain of the past, that helps them to develop a better future from that knowledge. And that's that's stuff that's coming out of me that I don't know how. I do know that my mm-hmm. grandmother, my grandfather, my mum, and that they've given me this. You talk about this idea of collective healing, and that's really interesting in in the in terms of grief and that sort of process of healing and navigating grief. Could you tell me a little bit about what it's like when you're with the other men who share this experience, how that has helped you navigate this grief? We say this, uh, we are the ones who fall through the gap. You know, they, they talk about closing the gap. Well, that's fair enough. We just touched on it just a minute ago when you said that when we were home in our own communities that uh, the, the rejection from our own people plus the rejection from the community for the simple fact is that we did we we didn't grow up there, so we didn't we didn't fit in. So we are a community of our own, right? And this is what we we understand now as we come together. And I tell people that please come and see us when we all come together. This COVID has knocked it over, but I said what you will see you will see the oldest children playing that you've ever seen in your life, right? Because we go there because we never had that childhood. So when we get together around each other, we all know which one, this, that one, and we all know a little bit about each other. Collective healing is that sense is that when we get together, we trust each other. And trust is probably the most powerfulest thing because of where we were, it's very difficult for us to trust anybody because of what happened to us. But so when when we when we give our trust, it's so precious and but if it gets broken, well then it doesn't go back. Because if we d- tell the truth, like I said, the young ones are the knowledge elders of the future. So we need to tell them about the trauma of what happened back then. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I I'm so grateful. You have given me so much time and been so vulnerable. I can't thank you enough. I can't heal unless I can tell somebody. And I tell, I'm telling you now, those magical things about our people are the three most important things that we've got is the ability to listen, the ability to smell, and especially the ability of observation. And that's it. It's magic. That was Uncle Michael Welsh, a member of the Healing Foundation's Stolen Generations Reference Group. Katrina Stirrett, SBS News.